0: Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast
1: on this new year of 2019. First of all, I'd like to say happy new year, and I hope everybody had a great holiday season and a great New Year's Eve. I wanted to start the year out with an episode regarding gut health, because I am a firm believer in the fact that all disease begins in the gut. And gut health is imperative to our overall health. So today I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Lovink. Dr. Rachel Lovink is a naturopathic physician who studied at the Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine. She is in Victoria, British Columbia, and her specialties include mental health services, including anxiety and depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder, declining cognitive function, and mood swings. She also specializes in hormonal health and gut health-related problems such as gas, bloating, GERD, and reflux, constipation, and diarrhea, gastric ulcers, infections, SIBO, H. pylori, IBS, and IBD, or Crohn's. And today's topic is, is your gut making you depressed? hope you enjoy the show, and I wish you a very, very, very happy new year. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Rachel Lovink to the Rebel Health Coach podcast. Thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Before we get started into the gut and depression and anxiousness, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself and how you, where you studied and how you got into this realm of naturopathic medicine?
2: So um yeah so I'm a naturopathic doctor I'm here in Victoria BC which is in Canada and um I um studied at the Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine so that's one of two schools that we have down here in Canada um the rest being down in the states and um graduated in 2016 and um essentially have been practicing here in Victoria since so for me, I mean, my journey with with naturopathic medicine probably started um, when I was really young. My mom, I was sort of raised that way. My mom didn't really ever took take us to um, allopathic doctors. You know, she would take us to the local herbalist or to some energy healer. So I just sort of grew up with that background. But you know, really, what pushed me into naturopathic medicine was was sort of my own health journey, um, which you know is probably very common among um, us naturopathic physicians and also for for um, you know, um, allopathic doctors, but I think more commonly you'll hear the story with naturopathic doctors. So that was essentially my turning point in my career, which I had done sort of several careers before um, getting to this one. Was uh, yeah, my own health journey and, and having this sort of breakthrough. So yeah, I can get into that. It, you know, uh, as a as a young you know adult, I you know was working in the restaurant industry, so not eating really well, not sleeping really well. Yeah. You know, probably drinking too much alcohol, you know, not excessively, but more than probably was good for my body and, and sort of started developing both gut symptoms. Or, you know, I sort of had what the classical IBS stuff going on, whether it was gas and bloating or, um, you know, altered, you know, stool. So, you know, constipation and diarrhea. And, you know, of course, this is always, you know, hindsight, but, and I can tell this story very chronologically because I can see it now. But so for me, that that was happening, and then and then of course, you know, my mood started slipping. So I started, um, you know, experiencing a lot more anxiety, you know, low moods, and these sort of alter. And you know, I sort of hit my breaking point when I had a panic attack at, at a meeting with uh, the company I was working for at the time, and that's just sort of threw me into a tailspin. Of um, for anybody who's had a, a panic attack. They know that the um, what follows is sort of this fear of having another one. So this kind of set me down this this path of um, a lot of anxiety, you know, mixed in with depression, and then of course all all these gut symptoms that came up. So you know, to make a really long story short, I sort of hit the rock bottom where I didn't know what else to do, and so I went to a doctor's office, and you know, within five minutes of being in the doctor's office, I was um, walked out of the office holding a prescription for an antidepressant. And, you know, aside from the fact that I was you know, sort of confused and didn't, didn't think I was depressed, even though I was experiencing low mood and anxiety, I just intuitively knew it wasn't right. And so I sat with that antidepressant for a week before I actually decided to take it. And, and I did because I was, I was desperate and I didn't know what else to do. And within a week of taking the antidepressant, I just started getting all these side effects. Um, you know, I, I, my sleep got worse. My anxiety actually got worse. And so my instinct was just to stop, and so I stopped it. Um, and of course, you know, things just got worse. And this was sort of my rock bottom. And it was um, right around Christmas time, and I had, you know, uh, you know, ironically, gotten a book from my brother, and the book is called Clean, and it's by an author called Alejandro Junger uh, or Younger, however you want to say that. This I sort of see as my as my saving grace because I ended up grabbing the book and you know really gravitating towards it, and I read it. And the book is really about essentially just cleaning up your diet, cleaning up your, your environment, cleaning up what you're exposed to. And so you do this, I did a six-week program with this clean and completely eliminated my anxiety and depression and all of my gut symptoms. I, to this day, don't think I've ever felt that level of, um, of you know, happiness and waking up just feeling incredible every day because it's really hard to commit to a 6 weeks program. But so that was sort of my like aha moment where I said, oh my gosh, you know, this is real medicine. Um, you know, healing my body based on just what I was putting in it, and so this was my inspiration to sort of look into. Well, there's something to this, and that led me to naturopathic medicine, where you know the core of what we believe is that everybody, everybody, and everybody's body has the ability to heal itself, and so healing comes from within. So okay, yeah,
1: okay. So that's where the the mood and anxiety focus became, became more prevalent.
2: Totally. Yeah. I mean, okay. you know, when you've experienced something yourself, you have a lot of um, ability to be compassionate towards um, that, you know, particular condition right. and um, it's, in, and then, you know, the inspiration and the, and the intuitive knowledge that that can be fixed and not saying everybody's anxiety and depression is caused by the same thing. Cause it's not, but you know my own experience with it really taught me that there's something beneath you know a lifestyle approach to it
1: okay yeah. okay and mood and anxiety disorders today are more prevalent than ever
2: yeah
1: because i mean we're we, we well first of all we eat a lot of junk
2: yeah
1: <laughs> and second of all i mean we're all we all work a lot of hours and people get stressed out and they don't do a lot of self care
2: it's very true and and you know what we'll dig into today is really that you know mood and anxiety disorders are, are multifactorial in their cause, um, but ultimately there's a lot of dysfunctions in the body, um, you know whether it's hormonal, whether it's nutrients that can that can mimic or cause these symptoms of anxiety and depression, and so that's really the important um, piece of of how we approach anxiety and depression is not you know slapping a medication on people that are experiencing these symptoms, but rather doing the investigative work to figure out where what's going on, what's the imbalance, you know, why is the body responding in this way? And so that's sort of how I've, I've approached all my patients. And the other part is that, you know, mood, mood and anxiety always come as a part of most conditions. So people come in with gut condi- you know, walk into my office and I have gas and bloating, there's always a mood, mood component to that. So that just sort of tells us that connection. You know, people coming in with thyroid disorders, well, there's usually a mood component to that, whether it's depression. We know hypothyroidism is, is linked to depression. So, you know, that's, I guess my point in saying that is that the body's linked. It's not, you know, it doesn't operate in, in you know, um, compartments. It's, it interacts in, in the different organs and our different tissues interact with one another. So we have to approach healing in this way.
1: Okay. All right. Let's dig into the gut a little bit. Uh, I mean, we always hear the phrases like, I have butterflies in my stomach. I have a gut feeling or that there's a pit in my stomach. And, you know, there's a, I'm a firm believer in the gut brain connection or that. And, uh, I know Hippocrates was an older, old gentleman. He was, was 200 BC. He said the gut, uh, all disease begins in the gut. So he's a very brilliant man.
2: Right.
1: Let's talk about that. What, What does the gut have to do with how we feel?
2: Right. So, I mean, a few important pieces here, but, you know, when we think about the gut, um, a lot of people don't realize that the gut actually has its own nervous system. So, it is lined with um, um, nervous systems, um, cells and parts that, you know, are part of the greater nervous system of our body. So, that's important for us to know because how we feel is, is, you know, largely mediated by our nervous system, but also... It is mediated by um, hormones and neurotransmitters, which actually the gut produces um, a lot of its own hormones and neurotransmitters. So things like serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, all these, um, you know, you know, things that we know are related to um, mood. Well, guess what? The gut also produces those. So those two components there can tell us that, you know, how we feel or sorry, what, what happens in our gut can impact how we feel. And then the other component to this is is that um, you know we know that our gut is lined with a a microbial population, and and this these microbes, so these good gut bacteria, influence our immune response. And so our immune response is very much tied into inflammation. And so what we'll learn later on is, is the role that inflammation plays in brain health and in mood disorders, which is a really important piece. So yeah, and, and you know, and I, I will also just mention that you know, typically when we think about the gut function, we think about um, how the brain influences the gut, right? So the brain controls motility, it controls the secretion of important, um, uh, you know, products of digestion, so our, our enzymes. But actually, what you know we've learned, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is that actually the gut influences the brain um, as well. And and this is called the bi-directional communication between the brain and the gut. So yes, the brain influences the gut, but the gut and its contents and what happens there has a large influence and communicates with the brain. So this, this is really important because it, it tells us that, um, you know, we can make a big impact on our brain health and our mood health by impacting what's, what's going on in the gut.
1: Okay, good. Okay. And, the role between the gut plays with the mood and anxiety also. Uh, can you expand on that just a little bit before we dig deeper?
2: Yeah, so I mean, if we just even just basically really just talk about what the gut does, this will give us a lot of insight into okay. understanding how it can impact the brain. So when we look at its function, so it's involved in the absorption and breakdown of nutrients. Um, and this includes a lot of the precursors to our important neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, and if we're not properly breaking down and absorbing nutrients, guess what? We're also not making. So it also communicates and educates the immune system. And as I mentioned, um, this is a, a, plays a big role in our inflammatory response in our body, um, which you know we is is sort of thought to be at the the root of most chronic modern uh, diseases, which include mood disorders such as depression. It's a protection, a barrier between the inside and the outside. So it prevents toxins, it prevents um, you know, undigested food particles, it prevents unwanted bacteria and other substances, viruses, from essentially entering into our bloodstream and interfering with our immune system, our nervous system, and our hormone system. So that's really important, You know its role in protecting... But it also um, not just absorbs and breaks down nutrients, but a lot of the bacteria in our gut produce important nutrients, neurotransmitters and hormones. This includes things such as B12, serotonin, GABA, norepinephrine and dopamine. And these all play a really critical role in mood regulation. And I'll just give your listeners a few examples is that, for example, lactobacillus, which is a known species that inhabits the gut, produces acetylcholine and GABA, okay? And GABA is one of our sort of calming, um, sedative-type neurotransmitters. The bifido species produces GABA as well, and the streptococcus and the enterococcus, which are also normal inhabitants of our gut, produce serotonin. So um, all these are really important for brain health. So you know what we put into the gut and how it impacts that bacterial population and the function of our gut goes a long way to impacting our our brain and mood. I hope that. Okay.
1: Makes sense. Okay. Yep. Now, here's a big issue I see is that allopathic medicine model on treating this is usually done by handing out a prescription, just as you were handed, right. or a, for a proton pump mm-hmm. inhibitor. or something to reduce the serotonin, it actually has a a downward spiral effect. Could you go into that a little bit?
2: Yeah, well, you know, really, you know, what we, I just want to take a step back and just kind of talk about, um, you know, the old model of um, how we treat mental illnesses and what we've now learned. So um, under this conventional model of treating mental illnesses, the primary concern is to treat the symptoms. So for example, we give an antidepressant, um, right. And this is to decrease the symptoms of depression. Well, depression is a, is a symptom exactly that it's not um, in my in the way I treat a disease in and of itself. Um, and so based on this model of chemical imbalance where we're um, giving something like a, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which increases right. you know supposedly increases levels of serotonin in a patient, um, is, is sort of misguided because the research actually shows that this this approach, so this chemical imbalance in our brain model is, is faulty for several reasons. Well, one is that studies have shown that when we reduce levels of these neurotransmitters, so norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, it doesn't actually reliably re, um, reproduce depression in humans. Also that some depressions actually have low levels of these neurotransmitters. And then, again, um, some depressed. Patients actually have high levels, so there's really an inconsistency in this um, chemical approach. So, again, might, we might have to consider that depression is is not um, is not a neurotransmitter problem, but instead, you know, an accumulation of downstream sorry an accumulation of symptoms that are caused by downstream somewhere else in the body. So. Um, the other, you know, sort of thing we want to think about when we talk about anxiety and depression is that we, again, we want to investigate what the root cause is. We want to know what, you know, what's downstream, what's causing these symptoms. Because if we think about things like um, common symptoms that, that people experience with anxiety and depression, so let's just take depression for example. There's often a fatigue. There's lack of motivation. There's difficulty um, thinking. There might be insomnia. There might be changes in appetite or, or weight. And these symptoms in and of themselves can be caused by many other dysfunctions in the body. And I'll just give you a few examples. So, you know, hmm. anemia can cause the same list of symptoms. Thyroid disorders can cause these same symptoms. Nutritional deficiencies, like not enough B12 um, can cause a symptom and even hormonal. So sex hormone imbalances. So estrogen or progesterone or testosterone imbalances can all cause these same symptoms. So when we have someone that walks into my office and they're saying, I'm tired, I can't think straight, um, you know, I can't sleep. I ask why, you know, because that's really important because What's the underlying processes that are causing these is where we have to address mood disorders um, and, and how we can really provide um, relief for these patients instead of, you know, slapping them with a, a pill that really isn't isn't fixing much, except for providing potentially some some temporary relief.
1: Temporary. Yeah, I did say proton pump here, but it's a SSRI. I don't I that up. A little bit. I don't know why I have that written down here.
2: The proton pump inhibitors. Well, I mean yeah. that can impact mood too, right? Because yeah, pump inhibitors <laughs> inhibit our ability to break down food, and as I yeah. mentioned, that's a really important um, part of you know brain health is having the right um, things that feed into. All right. Mom, so.
1: All right. So let's dig into what the harm of not getting to the root cause is i mean we know that some of these medications are are temporary relief and some sometimes they're necessary yeah and what is some of the the harm of not getting to the root cause of this problem in the gut
2: right so the you know for me that's kind of twofold is is um one is that individuals who have mood disorders whether it's anxiety depression are more likely to engage in in, um, unhealthy lifestyle behaviors. So thinking things like drinking, smoking, eating poorly, lack of exercise, that's sort of a risk factor. So if we're not actually addressing um, the behavioral component or what's lying beneath it, we're actually um, increasing the the risk for other chronic illnesses. But the more important piece, which I think you're asking is, um, if we don't address this root cause, well, I guess, what is the root cause? And what we're starting to learn, and especially in depression, is that um, inflammation is sort of one of the key pathological processes that, that um, can occur in depressed patients. And this is a really important piece to consider because inflammation is actually um, can cause many other dysfunctions in the body. And, and now research is showing that it's actually at the root of most modern chronic diseases. So if we're not actually addressing this inflammation, not only may we have patients who have mood disorders, but we may also be have patients who may develop diabetes, may de- develop other cardiovascular conditions, may develop cancer because of this inflammatory component. So we have to go after the root cause, which is inflammation. If we truly want our patients to get better and if we truly want our patients to have longevity and enjoy life, right? Right.
1: Let's dig into inflammation since we're... You- you know, that's, that is a lot to do with, you know, the gut health. And, and, and you've talked about that a little bit, but let's dig into what does inflammation have to do specifically with our brain? Cause nobody, when people think of inflammation, we think of uh, a cut and it inflames or uh, a broken bone where it inflames, but nobody thinks about the gut and the brain connection with inflammation. Yeah. Or not a lot of people do.
2: Right. So yeah, it's good for people to sort of make that link there. It's great that you brought that up. as, you know, um, externally inflammation looks like exactly what you said. When we stub our toe, when we burn our hand, it's that raw, red, hot, swollen sensation. And we can sort of allude to that in terms of what happens in the body too. Um, and the problem, you know, sort of just to jump ahead for a second, is that when this happens in the brain, and, and we will explain sort of how this ends up happening in the brain. Is that actually uh, the brain doesn't have pain sensors. So while we can feel inflammation um, externally when we burn ourselves, we actually don't feel it in the brain. But instead, what what happens is a bunch of um, chemical changes that lead to these mood mood problems, which I'll I'll get into in a moment. But so, you know, if we talk about inflammation and, and we're talking about it on a gut level, well, as I, as I kind of started talking about at the beginning, is um, the immune system, or sorry, the gut is lined with the nervous system, but it actually houses 80% of our immune system, okay? So when we're exposing our gut to um, toxins, to foods that maybe we're allergic to, to bacteria and viruses that are not you know uh, endogenous to our, our, our gut, when we're constantly stressed out, all these things provoke an immune response. And it really comes down to actually our bacteria population. They're sort of considered the educators to the immune system. So when we are exposing our gut and therefore our microbes that are in our gut to, to elements that are they're reacting to, this sets off an, an inflammatory and an immune response, not just in the gut, but also in the body because of the role that these bacteria play in educating our immune response. So let's just take, for example, um, a patient who um, is uh, consuming, let's just say corn, for example, and not everyone's allergic to corn, but let's sort of assume that we know this patient is, is, um, and sorry, let me not say allergic, is sensitive to corn. Eating that corn product, what happens is that your microbes sort of alert, um, consider this, this food to be a toxic or foreign substance um, and, 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 and educates so it, it sort of sets off an immune response in the cells that line the gut. And this immune response therefore um, releases a bunch of um, cytokines and other messaging molecules that are at the root of sort of this inflammatory process that then goes elsewhere in the, in the body. So this is kind of a basic kind of explanation of um, what happens in the gut and how it reaches the immune system and then how this immune system Causes inflammation that goes elsewhere in the body, and in the context of this conversation, eventually reaches the brain. Okay. So, well, I know we, you know, we'll probably get into a little bit about the leaky gut, but this inflammatory process um, that happens in the gut because of all these things we're being exposed to changes the microbial population, which therefore you don't have that same protective mechanism because these microbes are really um, a really big protective role. But also with chronic inflammation in the gut, we also get a breakdown of our our gut lining. Okay, and so this gut lining is sort of like a skin-like tissue that gut, so all the way from your mouth down to your rectum, and and it's a sort of a barrier between the inside and the outside world. Um, but with chronic inflammation, we actually get a breakdown of that skin-like layer, and you can sort of think of it as a sieve instead of it being a a wall and. So food particles and, you know, potentially um, external bacteria are able to leak through and cause a secondary immune response. So now things are not staying in the gut as they should. They're now getting into systemic circulation and causing another immune response, which triggers another inflammatory response.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I like to think of the leaky gut as a pair of nylons and you rip a hole in it. And start and stuff starts to show, Exactly. but things leak out of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very good analogy. Um, the 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 gut lining is very selective in terms of what it lets through. But you're right; as we expose it to inflammation, it's not able to do that same kind of selective response in terms of what gets in and what gets out. Yeah.
1: And now for some general housekeeping. First things first. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute. Go into your app and rate and review this show. Then share it with your friends. This would mean the world to me. Next up, to join my mailing list for newsletters and other emails, text RHCP, Rebel Health Coach Podcast, RHCP to 22828. Again, text R H. CP to 22828. I promise not to send you endless emails. Believe me, who has the time for that? Now, to grab a free 20-minute consultation with me, go to my website, and on the homepage, at the bottom is a red button that says Book Now. Click it and schedule your consultation with me. I will have you fill out an intake form so that during our consultation, we can discuss what I can do for you and also see if we are a good fit to work together. You can find the link in the show notes also. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode. Before we get into the leaky gut in more detail, which I really want to do because that's what causes a lot of this, Mm -hmm. is Let's take a closer look at the gut and take us through a top down view.
2: Right.
1: For the listeners.
2: Yeah. And that's important because I don't think people understand all the different parts of our gut and how they are all connected. So I like to really explain it very simplistically to my patients. I say, think of a hollow tube. Okay. And so this is essentially what our gut is it's a hollow tube, starts in our mouth and ends in our rectum. And it's a very consistent lining of hollow tube that goes down. We break it down into its individual components. We have the esophagus and then we have the stomach and then we have the small intestine and then we have the large intestine and then finally our rectum. And so this hollow tube, while while simple in its structure, um, as we've already talked about, is actually quite complex in its function. But um, for the purposes of explaining, this hollow tube is a a skin like layer, as we talked about, which is our gut lining. And on the inside, so um, and we and just so listeners know, when we talk about the inside of your gut, we actually consider that to be the external world. So that's why this this um, gut lining is such plays such an important role because anything that's in your gut is still considered to be in part of the external world. It's only once your body and your gut body's microbes have decided, um, in, and this is in a healthy individual, that these substances are safe to enter into your body, is it, does it actually able to get across the gut lining? So I'd like to explain that. Inside the gut wall, you know, inside the gut is still external to the world. And so on top of this, um, you know, hollow tube, so the skin-like layer, which we call our, 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 um, our gut barrier. We have um, a mucus lining. We have microvilli that play a role in digestion absorption. And then importantly, we have all of our gut microbes. And we literally have microbes that are um, all the way that are in our mouth and that are all the way down into our large intestine. And the number of them is really where they differ. So um, when we talk about our healthy microbial population, yes, to some degree we're talking about the stomach and we're talking about the small intestine, but mostly we talk about the large intestine because this is where um, the majority of our, our microbes reside. Um, and essentially when we talk about the small intestine, it's it's relatively sterile. So the numbers of bacteria in this part of our gut are closer to a thousand, whereas in our our, our large intestine there are you know, millions and billions. I might be misquoting myself here. But so this is really important to consider. So um, the health and the population and the balance of these bacteria that line and that are in each individual compartment of our gut play a really big role in how our gut functions. So I'm sure some of your listeners have heard about SIBO, which is small intestinal bowel overgrowth. That's where we have too much bacteria in a part of our gut where we shouldn't have it. And that's in the small bowel. Another infection that we can talk about is H. Pylori. Well, that's an infection that happens in the stomach, and um, um, and this is when uh, this population is it's able to thrive because um, usually it's related to not enough stomach acid. So I'm just sort of giving your your listeners some examples of you know the different microbial populations that um, inhabit different parts of our gut.
1: Okay, since we you just said uh, stomach acid, yes. Let's go into that a little bit because a lot of people have a misconception of when they have acid reflux, they have too much stomach acid. And that's a misconception that, you know, even gets played out on TV commercials.
2: Right. Yeah. And so, you know, stomach acid, um, you know, so yeah, I guess to answer your question, yes, it is a misconception because the symptoms of not enough, of, oh, sorry, the symptoms of reflux and heartburn commonly are associated with too much acid can be caused by both too much acid, but also by not enough stomach acid. And, you know, I don't have the the number of percentages here, but I'll tell you from my own anecdotal and clinical experience and in in reading, uh, you know, research that supports this is that um, more often than not, patients have not enough stomach acid. And this can be confusing for people, but the underlying factor here is that stomach acid actually um, causes the closing of our lower esophageal sphincter. So remember that the compartments, our gut is compartmentalized and we have our esophagus and then we have our stomach and we have um, valves essentially that keep the contents of the stomach from essentially splashing up into our esophagus because the contents of the stomach are very acidic. But when we don't have enough stomach acid, this lower esophageal sphincter um, can, can open slightly and or not close enough. And so what happens is we get regurgitation of food, or we may get um you know acid that splashes up. And this is sort of just a simple you know explanation of it. Other things right. you know underlying that. But yeah, so so when a person comes into my office and you know complains of reflux and GERD. I'll first investigate what what is causing this. So is it stress? Is it, um, you know, are they on, actually, ironically enough, a proton pump inhibitor? Um, You know, do they have infection, H. pylori being one of the most common ones? So, um, yeah, that's sort of the the stomach acid debate. Um, But, you know, with that being said, there are some patients who do produce too much stomach acid, but those are the minority rather than the majority. Yeah. And so, All right, let's, a quick way. So, i for people, the quick way to distinguish this is actually um, people who have hypochloridia, so not enough stomach acid. They get put on a proton pump inhibitor. Typically, their symptoms won't resolve completely because stomach acid, not you know, too much stomach acid, is not the problem. So sometimes it can be a, you know a differentiator. Um, but anyways, we always sort of investigate what's causing this.
1: All right, let's dig into. Uh, the leaky gut, just before we get into some other protocols. And I want to talk about E. coli for a minute because E. coli gets a lot of bad rap. But yeah. let's dig into leaky gut and what are some of the causes of leaky gut? We all hear about gluten.
2: Right. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, I mean, there's many causes. And, and gluten, you know, it, it does get a bad rap. And I'm not anti-gluten by any means. Um, I certainly do test for celiac and I'll test for food sensitivities to the proteins that are in gluten. Um, but there's two reasons why if people are having gut problems and or mood problems, I, I usually take this guy out to begin with. And that's because um, for, for two reasons. One, gluten is literally in everything. And so there is something to the saying you know, that too much of a, bad, of a, of a good thing is bad. So, you know, if we you know, go grocery shopping and we we'll look at the box of all the labels, typically there'll be some form of, of gluten in, in the majority of packaged goods that we buy. So, whenever our body's immune, our body's gut and therefore immune system is, is overexposed to food substances, this sort of can be a predisposing factor to um, immune reactivity. And therefore, inflammation. So, you know, I like to eliminate as many variables as possible. So, typically, I'll, I'll say, let's keep gluten out. And secondly, is that gluten is actually, um, tip, you know, when we think about the foods that contain gluten, it typically includes things like pasta and breads and pastries. And so, inherently, by removing gluten, we're, we're typically, you know, taking these guys out. So, it sort of just sets us off on a better eating um, dietary plan to begin with which, you know, sort of fits into our model of, of treating mood disorders. Um, so, I, yeah, I, you know, in, in terms of it being a gut disruptor, that sort of depends on whether a patient is celiac or or not has non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and these are two different things. So to differentiate, um, celiac is an autoimmune disease that damages the small intestine and actually interferes with the absorption of important nutrients, and we can readily identify this for the most part Um, through lab testing, so if you're suspicious of it, definitely ask your doctor to check for celiac. And even if you know um, if you have any kind of gut disruptions and you eat gluten and, and you're not you know dying or keeling over, I would still test for it just to rule out. But then the other you know um, gluten sensitivity is is the non-celiac, and so this is also an immune response. We don't understand it quite as well, but we certainly know that in these individuals, um, consuming gluten causes fairly immediate symptoms. And so these are sort of a separate class of patients that for sure gluten's a non negotiable with taking it out of the diet. Um, Yeah.
1: What about GMOs?
2: So, GMOs, um, you know, are genetically modified organisms. And and, um, one of the, to understand sort of why I, I typically um, suggest people take these out is because in order to um, the reason we create genetically modified organisms is essentially so that they are resistant to herbicides and pesticides, right? This improve, improves the farmer's crop. Well, um, one of the herbicides and pesticides that they, um, that they genetically modify to be resistant to is something uh, we call glyphosate, uh, which is it's more commonly known as Roundup. And you just type that guy in a, into your Google Scholar and you will come up with numerous studies that show um, the impacts that glyphosate and Roundup have not just on um, gut health, but also on our hormonal health um, and uh, the production of important things such as serotonin and vitamin D. It's known to disrupt with that because it's considered an endocrine disruptor. So that's a really big reason why when I talk about GMOs, I um, you know it's got quite a buzzword around it, and I just say stick to the clean fifteen and dirty dozen, and those are two very readily um, searchable um, items on the internet, um, and they're essentially a list of foods that are typically glyphosate free. So that would be your clean fifteen, and then your dirty dozens are the ones that are usually quite heavily sprayed with with glyphosate. So you definitely want to avoid those. Um, and that list does change typically year by year so make sure when you're looking at it you're looking at the um, current year's
1: Yeah I'll put a link in the show notes at EWG.org
2: Yeah
1: Yeah uh,
2: and just so that um, listeners know two of the most common GMO foods are corn and soy so if you're going to consume these foods and you're able your immune system's able to tolerate them these are like absolute make sure they're organic and non-GMO
1: it's hard to get organic corn anymore, but, or yeah. soy for that
2: matter. I don't eat corn, so you're right. I don't yeah, really know, it's,
1: but <laughs> it's, it's, it's very hard to get either soy and corn that's non gmo Let's talk about something that a lot of people don't think about, I and mean, we all is stress. And I'm, I'm this is one that is personal to me because I have a tendency to go hard and, in the gym and stress my body out and stress my adrenals out and. And it usually has a downstream effect of my gut.
2: Right. So yeah.
1: Go ahead. I mean, and then we're also in a stressful time of year.
2: Yeah. You know. Yeah, Christmas time. Yep. Gotta buy all those presents. Navigate yeah. the malls. All of <laughs> dodging, dodging people at the mall. Dodging people. <laughs> <laughs> it could be actually a fun game.
1: It can be a you fun embrace game. It. I don't I don't have any dodging to do on Amazon.com. Oh so.
2: right. That's the era that we're in. So <laughs> funny. Yeah. My partner and actually were talking about that. You know, we haven't done our Christmas shopping and we said, well, we can just order it all on Amazon. <laughs> so, so funny the world we live in. Yeah.
1: Now. Yeah. Yep.
2: Ironically, I might end up doing that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I like Etsy too. If we're gonna
2: th- Oh, yeah, the, that's uh, a good one. That's a good idea. Yeah. Well, therefore, yeah. So, I mean, managing your stress, and and if online shopping is a way that you can manage your stress, that's that's going to take you a long way with um with healing your gut. So, yeah, we'll dig into that. So, I mean, we already talked about the connection between um uh, your gut and the nervous system, right? So, your your gut is lined with nervous system cells, um, and so when we think about stress, what if we just sort of um you know, divide up the body's stress response, we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic, okay? So our sympathetic is sort of our fight or flight. So it's what happens when uh, our boss yells at us, when we have a deadline coming up. Um, As you mentioned, exercise can be a form of stress on the body. Um, So it sort of is that, that part of our nervous system that gets us up and going. And when we're in this sympathetic state, what happens is that our body's resources and blood gets diverted to organs that are really important to executing functions in that area. So that includes our brain, that includes our muscles and that includes our heart and our lungs primarily. So all of our body's resources go to these, these, these parts of our body in order to enable us to run and to um, execute those functions. And this happens at the detriment of our gut and our sex organ functions functions primarily. So, the opposite of our sympathetic is our parasympathetic and this is our, our rest and digest as it as it says and so in this um, state uh, our body's blood and resources come to our gut they come to our sex organs that enable those those parts of our bodies to operate efficiently so when we're chronically stressed and that can be uh, in many different forms that's one thing i always highlight to people Um, the most obvious forms of stress are those acute stressors. So as I mentioned, deadlines at work, um, you know, uh, stress in a relationship, you know, driving in traffic. Those are like, we know we're stressed in those situations. Um, But some of the more subtle stressors which uh, have the same impact on our nervous system, but we may not be quite aw- as aware of, is things like food sensitivities, things like infections, things like too much exercise. And that's a big one I talk to patients about, you know, I have patients who come in who are doing hit five days a week. And that's great in that your body's getting all toned up, but what that is also doing is that is um, increasing and perpetuating a cortisol and a sympathetic nervous system response in our body which if we're already stressed and we're already struggling, this can sort of be to your detriment rather than to um, your gain um, physically. So I'm just sort of trying to explain that stress can come in many different forms and it impacts our gut because when we're in a sympathetic state, our body's not able to digest and break down nutrients. And it's not, um, uh, the motility of our gut is not happening, um, which sort of propagates this um, this dysfunction and this uh, you know um, uh, inability or improper breakdown of nutrients, which can lead to fermentation in our gut, which creates gas and bloating. Um, you know when we have all when we have uh, lowered motility, so constipation. Uh, again, food is able to ferment and therefore feed certain populations over others, and leads to a, um, an imbalanced gut flora. Um, and, and, but also, you know, stress just in and of itself, the increased production of cortisol in and of itself, um, propagates an inflammatory response. So this just sort of sums up why stress is such an important component of addressing gut health.
1: And then we have antibiotics on top of that.
2: Right. So, I mean, that's, you know, pretty simple in the antibiotics or anti-life. And so, you know, antibiotics can be incredibly um, useful in certain situations when we need to, you know, preserve function and, and they can be very life saving, but um, they're far too um, commonly prescribed. And so, you know, when we kill our microbial population, we get um, a dysfunction in our gut. But also, you know, there's hidden sources of antibiotics. So antibiotics can be um, in, our, in our water sometimes, depending on where you live. Um, but more commonly in our meats, um, so that's really important to be aware of is that you're, you're having a lot of meat, so uh, especially red meat and and, and poultry, uh, to make sure you're buying antibiotic-free meats because this is also a source of um, gut killing and and also right. yeah so that sort of explains it. <clears throat> yep.
1: let's. Uh, I want to talk about before we dive into how we fix this. E. Coli gets a bad rap. Because, you know, especially now with the lettuce or the romaine, you know, I just, the romaine lettuce have just been all over the news. So that's why it came to my mind is E. coli. Right. But E. coli is not bad. Yeah.
2: And that's, you know, the thing with all bacteria is, is E. coli is actually a natural resident of our, of our gut um, microbial population. And this is such a key point is that it really comes down to balance, right? So we have, oh gosh, I don't even know the number of, of um, species of bacteria in our gut, E. coli being one of them. And as long as we're maintaining the balance of bacteria... We're maintaining a healthy immune response and we're uh, maintaining the function of our gut. It's when certain populations are able to thrive over others that we get dysfunction. And so, yeah, I mean, when you talk about the E. coli scare with, with Romaine, we're taking doses of E. coli from our foods, which is not necessarily beneficial. But then again, you know, depending on the health of your gut, some people are not impacted by that and others who may have, um, you know, not as healthy of a gut population, um, are more prone to, to having to to those infections.
1: Okay. Let's dig into the four R's and how, you know, how do we fix this? Okay. We have a leaky gut or we have gut problems. We have anxiety, we have depression. What are the, how do we fix this?
2: Right, so yeah, the four r's essentially are is a structural framework that you know most of us naturopathic physicians use to to treat the gut, and that's um first and foremost is remove, so this is sort of a key key component and can sometimes take up the largest portion of our treatment protocol is actually removing the barriers to health, so uh, we can be taking you know all the eating all the best foods in the world and, you know, taking the best supplements. But if we have an infection in our gut that is, you know, going unabated or unchecked, all of our good work is not going to get very far. Same thing with um, chronic stress. If we have chronic stress all the time, we're not able to get our body into that parasympathetic state. We could be taking all the best food in the world, but guess what we're not doing? We're not breaking it down and absorbing it. So that's why the first R is such an important component, which is remove the barriers to health. The second one is, um, is replace. So replace systems or um, parts of the digestive tract that are not working properly. So typically that involves replacing with digestive enzymes, which is usually a key component of anybody who has gut, is just to sort of help the body along to break down those, those um, the food that we're eating. Um the third one is uh so we re- remove replace uh re-inoculate, right so reinoculate which is giving probiotics so reinoculating with good um healthy bacteria and it's really important that we choose the type of bacteria and the type of um probiotics we're giving very carefully and quality does matter in this area and then the lastly part is repair. And so this is sort of the last stage typically uh, where we repair that gut lining. And this includes things like L-glutamine, which is used by the enterocytes of our large intestine um, and small intestine um, as a food source. So it helps to um, propagate their recovery. Um, it can include things that are sort of healing to the gut lining. So this can be things like um, DGL, slippery elm, you know, some important fibers, which help to feed the good bacteria. So these are prebiotic fibers. So there's many different, you know, ways to repair, but typically, um, you know, this is sort of a last stage that we do in in the four hours.
1: Okay. Let's do this now. Before we go, what do you you have to add to this that you'd like to tell the listeners as far as the anxiety, depression, and the gut?
2: Well, first and foremost is, you know, to sort of listen to your gut. So for anyone who's struggling with any um, mood disorders, um, the gut is, is, is such a fundamental place to start. And, um, uh, and you know, really the, the reason is being is that it's it's the source. It's our source of food and fuel for our brain. Um and so if we're not feeding ourselves and not making sure that the food we're actually consuming is actually getting broken down and, and integrated into our body, um, we're really you know, taking any steps we're taking forward is going to be a step back because we're not able to produce those healthy neurotransmitters and, and hormones. But also you know, listen to your gut because it always will sort of tell you when things are off. And, and so if we have gas and bloating, if we have constipation, diarrhea... Um, you know, reflux, any of these symptoms is sort of a body's way of telling us to pay attention, to kind of tune back in um, and, and this, is a, this is a great sort of place to start if we want to start correcting mood disorders um, and that's, you know, largely related to this immune and inflammatory component that our gut plays in in overall brain health, so
1: Okay Awesome Well, let's ask you a question here now <laughs> And I asked this of all my guests if you haven't if Rachel has an hour to a half an hour to kill, which we all know times a commodity yeah.
2: uh
1: what would you listen to group or album or any as far as music wise?
2: It's such a tough one because it's Christmas now. <laughs> so <laughs> Christmas music. Um, yeah. yeah. We're I mean, usually I rotate, you know, through some type of jazz um is kind of my go-to. Who's one of my favorite artists right now? I mean, I love Ben Howard. Um Ben Howard's mm. I, I let's stick with that one. Ben Howard. Um, ben Howard, okay. Yeah, he's a great artist and uh yeah, he's really chill and great steady music or you know, having a bath kind of music. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that's good
2: yeah
1: i want to thank you so much for coming back to join me today and i guess the listeners don't know about that but the last time we recorded this i forgot to push record (laughs)
2: yeah so so we had a practice uh, run
1: we had a practice run i thank you so much for really coming back i'm so grateful for you you know and i hope you have a very merry christmas
2: uh thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be on here